Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray as we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, speak to us now as your church is gathered in the name of Jesus. Now in the preaching of your word, we ask great things of a great God and Savior. Now in this moment, let Satan's captives be released and bring the prodigals home and humble the self-righteous and open the blind eyes. Grant us true repentance and build up your church in the most holy faith. For Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We look together this morning at the book of Isaiah. We're going to jump right into the how and what and who and why of Isaiah. Isaiah's 66 chapters long, making it the longest prophet in the Old Testament. So I want to give you a, an overview of its major themes this morning. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll jump right in and do an exposition of Isaiah chapter 1. But this morning we want to ask these key questions of how, what, who, and why. What is uh, the book of Isaiah? The first two words of Isaiah 1.1 are the vision. You see that? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it's a vision and it's a word that Isaiah saw. That's interesting. So it's not a vision like a, like a trance. It's a vision of a word that he saw. What's a vision? Here we could say from Isaiah 1.1 and Isaiah 2.1 that a vision is seeing the word of God in real life. That a vision is seeing the word of God in real life. And I think Isaiah will give us a way of seeing because what we need, really, I, I want to tell you, the reason you need to be here right now is so that you can begin to see God in and over and above all things. That's vision. Vision is seeing the word of God and the presence of God in real life. Vision is a way of seeing that refuses to see things without seeing God. Vision is a way of seeing that sees God first and overall and in all. Because left to your own eyes, left to your own eyes, you would live with your own opinions, your own impressions, your own hunches, your own feelings, but you would be relatively blind to God and what matters most. If we see life in a way that doesn't relate life to the word of God in real life, then we're seeing without seeing and we're seeing without vision. I don't want you to go through life without vision. Isaiah will give you a way of seeing that always sees God first. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. And as you turn to Isaiah 40, if your Bible is, if your Bible is kind of printed the way that mine is, just look at the printing in Isaiah 40, and it looks like maybe a, a poetry or prophecy that it's kind of centered on the middle of the page. And then if you look back 
at a lot of page, uh, at a lot of chapter 39, a lot of chapter 38, all of chapter 36, and almost all of chapter 37 is just printed like a newspaper article. There's a reason for that. What happens is the news is reported in Isaiah 36 and 37 and 38 and 39. What's going on in Assyria? What's going on in Babylon? What's going on with the truckers in Canada? That's all being reported in 36 and 37 and 38, 39. And the way the Bible prints it, it just puts it that, that that's what's happening. In other words, that's what everyone with normal eyes can see. But that's not vision. Then when we get to Isaiah 40, even the print is different because this is Isaiah's vision of seeing the word of God reflected over and judging on everything that's happening on the earth. Vision is a way of seeing who God is. And so if you look at Isaiah 40, look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span? What everyone can see is there's Assyria and there's people fighting over this land and fighting over that land. But what vision says is, well, of all the players on the world stage, who is it, verse 12, who measures all the oceans in the hollow of his hand and marks off the heavens with a span and encloses the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? and who made him understand and who taught him the path of justice or who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. This is vision, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and all are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon and wouldn't, wouldn't be suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him with? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver change. He, chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. There's your vision, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and all of its habitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling all the stars by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Verse 27 is the speaking of people who see but have no vision because they see all the things, but they do not see God over and above and in all things. So God asks again, verse 28, 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The book of Isaiah will give you a vision to see beyond what everyone else can obviously see, to see the coming city of eternal gladness and to see what men and women crinkle their eyes shut and refuse to see, the coming judgment of the very fire of hell for those who refuse to repent. Isaiah will give you a vision to see that though you have sinned, there is a suffering servant willing to take your sin on his own thorn-pierced brow. We need Isaiah because we need vision to see the Word of God in real life. And so this morning, as we launch into this 66-chapter book, I want to give you simply the how, what, who, and why. First, the how. How is this book put together? Overviewing the structure of Isaiah. How is this book put together? Overviewing the structure of Isaiah. We could take the 66 chapters, and if you want to make one break, you could break it 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66, but I think three breaks is the best. 1 through 39 and then 40 through 55 and then 56 through 65. The first 39 chapters are set in Isaiah's lifetime, and he's counseling the kings about the threat that's coming from Assyria. That's 1 through 39. 40 through 55, we just begin here in 40 with comfort, oh comfort my people Israel. 40 through 55 is a prophecy of how Israel both now and in the future will be comforted and saved by a suffering servant. The famous suffering servant song is in this section, 40 through 55. Isaiah 52 and 53 is arguably the most explicit portrayal of the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ in all of the Hebrew Scriptures. Then we just have the last section, which is 56 through 66. <coughs> and like we would expect him to, Isaiah puts the eschaton, the last things, in the end of the book, in 56 through 66. And here we see a, a coming conqueror who will be anointed by the fullness of the Spirit and who will set all things right. Three major sections, and in each section, we have a different portrait of the central figure who is our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In ch chapters 1 through 39, there are messianic prophecies in chapters 1 through 39. We quote them at Christmas time. The portrait we have of Jesus in 1 through 39 is the portrait of, of Jesus as the, uh, as the coming king, the prophesied Davidic king the stem from Jesse's root. In 1 through 39, he's the prophesied Davidic king. In 40 through 55, he's the suffering servant, the suffering servant who, though through his stripes, we are healed. And then in 56 to 66, he is the anointed warrior with a sword on his thigh to trample down the winepress of the mighty wrath of God. In 56 through 66, he's the anointed warrior. You know, Scripture 
This book is a mighty, flowing river. And every ripple of its water leads us to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. We have this vision of Isaiah's prophecy structured around the reality of who Jesus is. If that's the how, secondly, the what. What is the theme of the book? Understanding the God who saves. What is the theme of the book? The theme of the book is understanding the God who saves or the God who saves sinners. Isaiah, the name in Hebrew, Isaiah, means the Lord saves. His very name announces that grace comes to us, salvation comes to us from outside of ourselves. If, you, if, if you're, by the goodness of God's spirit, if you're humble enough to really admit how proud you are, then you'd all agree with me that everybody likes the idea of salvation. And everybody wants to keep a finger on their own salvation. Well, I did something for it. Well, I merited it somehow. And what Isaiah teaches us, what the Bible teaches us, is if we're going to love what salvation really is, there's not a pinky worth of our effort in it. God saves sinners. What is the theme of this book? It's understanding the God who saves. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, or look at Isaiah 1, verse 18. We just sang this a few minutes ago. (laughs) He says, come now, 118, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There is a a stunning accuracy to even the teaching about salvation in this Old Testament expression. In verse 17, the the previous verse, I didn't even read it. There's all these these imperatives. You got to repent of your sin. You have to stop stealing from people. You have to do right. But then when you read verse 18, God isn't saying, if you repent of all your sin, you yourself will wash your sin away. He says, I am going to make your sin that you've made like scarlet. I'm going to make it white as snow. This is redemption. We have this wonderful Hebrew word redeemed in verse 27 of chapter 1. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say she'll be redeemed by mercy. God, who am I to say what God cannot do? But God cannot say she'll be redeemed because I'm going to pretend the sin never happened and let injustice go in my universe. God doesn't do that. He's just. He says she'll be redeemed, but she will be redeemed by justice. This will become more explicit in the substitutionary atoning language of Isaiah 52 and 53. The theme of the book of Isaiah is salvation. Though God's people have sinned and made their way red like crimson, God will make them white as snow. And then if you're a little bit familiar with what happens in Isaiah, this is what happens. In chapter 6, we have that happen to one guy, namely Isaiah. 
a, a burning coal is taken from the altar of atonement and his lips are purified. And then from there, <clears throat> in chapters 7, it talks about how Judah will be redeemed. And then on to chapter 9, 10, and 11, talk about how Israel will be redeemed. And then the, the section of Isaiah 13 through 37 is about the judgment against the nations and the redemption of the Gentile nations. This whole thing rolls out, showing us that the theme is redemption and salvation. It's been said, and I like it, that Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. That's a good call. Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. Because all of the threads oh, of the character of God and the deep reality of anthropology and human sinfulness and the very mechanisms of salvation through atonement, they all weave together here. Just like they do in Romans, they do in Isaiah. Romans, perhaps more than any other epistle, details the plan of salvation and the character of God. The plan of salvation and the character of God. Because to try to understand the plan of salvation by, while being blank on the character of God, you're not going to get anywhere. But to try to theoretically contemplate the character of God without a confession that says, I'm a sinner in need of salvation, you're not going to get anywhere. You've got to get both. <clears throat> this is what Isaiah does. The plan of salvation is tethered to, or to speak more organically, the plan of salvation blooms and blossoms out of the mighty riches of the character of God, the awesome holiness of God, the desperate sinfulness of sin. And we see how these two must, must go together, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. I'm not sure how many names of God there are in the Bible, but Isaiah has a favorite name for God. There's a name for God that is used six, maybe seven times in the Old Testament. And that name is used over 25 times in the book of Isaiah. It is his characteristic and favorite name for God. You'll see it in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, verse 4, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That's Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One of Israel. One of my commentaries, I think it's Matier, he takes four or five pages to drill down on that simple name, the Holy One of Israel. If we could just take a couple of seconds to drill down on the name, take those two things. Take those two components, the holy character of God, the sinfulness and unworthiness of men and women. The holy, majestic, unapproachable, pure God, the Holy One, transcendent and unapproachable, Man cannot look on him and live, <clears throat> right? The unfallen angels cover their eyes in his face. The Holy One. And yet somehow he says, of Israel, he will call and convert unworthy 
undeserving keep making the same mistakes over and over kind of people, and he will call them his own, and he will identify himself as God. So, we could say the entire book of Isaiah is an explanation and application of that paradox. How can the Holy One say that we are his? The holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity. You know, I, I was going to say I figured out, but I'm sure I didn't figure it out. I'm sure somebody taught it to me. I figured out or was taught decades ago now that the most profound theology in all of Christian doctrine is what I can play with on the playground with my grandkids. It's the seesaw. That's what it is. Because the holiness of God and our biblical anthropology about who we were created to be but who we have corrupted ourselves to become in our sinfulness, those two things, they have to go together. Even the explanation <clears throat> in Isaiah 52 and 53 of how God doesn't just look over sin, but sin in all of its heinousness is placed on the back of the suffering servant, that too highlights how, how desperate is the, our neediness in sinfulness and how important it is that the iniquity of sin be justly and righteously atoned for under the holiness of God. We have to see both of those things. Only in this way can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, which is Romans 3 and Isaiah 52. Only by the suffering servant. God's response to sin is always judgment or redemption. God's response to sin is always judgment or redemption. I hope, that's, I hope that doesn't sound too simple because we forget that. We don't have a vision for that. We don't have a vision for that. We have eyes that see all sorts of things and we wonder why is this person getting away with that and why is that person getting away with that and we don't have a vision that God's response to sin is always judgment or redemption. And what we will see in this Romans of the Old Testament is that God's way of redeeming us from our sin is judging his own suffering servant's son. The theme of the book of Isaiah is that God saves sinners. J.I. Packer, one of our favorite authors, and perhaps one of his best paragraphs is a, is a paragraph explaining use those three words, God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of Father and Son by renewing. Saves, that is, does everything first to last that is involved from bringing man from death in sin to life in glory. God plans it, achieves it, communicates it, calls and keeps and justifies and sanctifies sinners, men and women as God finds them guilty and vile and helpless and powerless to save themselves. So that in the whole enterprise from first to last, past, present and future to God alone be the glory forevermore. God saves sinners. If that's the great theme of Isaiah, then perhaps now we can ask, who were Isaiah and the prophets? 
Who were Isaiah and the prophets? Or who were the prophets? And a simple answer to who were Isaiah and the prophets is this. They were preachers applying the truth of God. They were preachers applying the truth. To understand what a prophet is, we have to understand what the law of God is. First comes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then later on come the books of prophecy. The prophets were preachers who applied in their day the principles and truths from the law of God. They rebuke with the law of God. Stop your sinning. Stop your injustice. Stop mistreating the foreigner and the widow. They plead with the law of God. Why why will you bring upon yourselves judgment when God has said that if you do these things, you'll be cursed? They apply the word of God to the financial situation of God's people today. They apply the word of God to the sexual fidelity of God's people today. They apply the word of God. The prophets are given a vision of judgment and a vision of salvation. Oftentimes, the prophet's vision is not so much like new, uh, brand new revelation that's never been dreamt of before as the vision of the prophets, like we said at the beginning, the vision of the prophets is applying the word of God to their own day in real life. We think about prophecy and immediately we all think about prediction. What's going to happen next? We fall into a habit of thinking of prophecy as some sort of a coded message that if we spin the Rubik's Cube just right, we'll figure out which president or which world dictator is going to be the Antichrist. Prophecy does give us insights into what is going to happen in the future. It does that. There is some of that. But the majority of the prophecy in the Old Testament especially is emphasizing this. It's applying the word of God in the contemporary situation of the people of God. So the prophets are telling us what's going to happen next, but in Isaiah's day, he he tells them a little bit of what's going to happen 2,000 years from now, and he tells them a lot of what's going to happen next, like, if you don't repent of your sin right now, this is going to happen to you. Like, what's going to happen next based on your behavior? The prophets were fearless preachers who counteracted the tidal wave of compromise and sin that God's people were swimming in happily, by applying the word of God. You could think of prophecy as prediction for persuasion. Prediction for the purpose of persuasion. So there's some prediction of how God's gonna renew all things thousands of years from now. And if I believe that prediction, I'll be persuaded to trust God today. But there's also an immediate prediction for persuasion where he's saying, God's law says this, you're ignoring it and sinning, so you will be judged if you don't repent. Prediction is you're living this way. If you continue to live in this way, my prediction for you is immediate judgment. Prophets are speaking about our current attitudes and actions, just as they were speaking of the current attitudes and actions of their first hearers. The purpose is prediction for persuasion. They're persuading about the unimaginable, marvelous blessings of obedience. If you'd follow what God says with generosity and hospitality and obedience and love, look at the kind of people you would be. We'll see that in Isaiah 2. And then he's speaking about the unthinkable, horrible judgments. If you don't repent of your sin, there's always that fear of judgment. 
and that longing for blessing. This is the classic technique. This is the classic advertising technique. Last week, everybody was talking about what were the best Super Bowl commercials. Classic advertising technique is uh, a simple binary. Your, your buy is either on loss and fear or your buy is on gain and promised benefit. Either the commercial is set up that if you don't get my product, something bad's going to happen to you. Or the commercial is set up, if you buy my product, all these wonderful things will happen in your life. I say that's classic because I don't really think commercials operate that way anymore. The commercials that I saw were just a, they're just like a pastiche of woke posing that doesn't have anything to do with anything. And I don't know why anybody would buy anything based on the commercials. But the classic technique is either loss or gain. You know the prophets of the Old Testament? And uh, because I've learned from them and I've meditated upon them, I hope by God's grace, your, your current teaching pastor, um, all I really want is for you to fear sinning a whole lot more than you already do. And all I really want is for you to long for God's presence and approval a whole lot more than you already do. If someday you would come to me and say, why are you preaching to me like I should be afraid of sinning? I will say to you, that is the only way I'm ever going to preach to you. Get used to it. Or someday if you come to me and say, why do you preach to me like the, what I should really care about in life is God's presence and favor and approval? I'll say, that's the only way I know how to preach to you. It's not, it's not gonna change. And this is what we find in Isaiah. God's holiness, the very character of God, it's the Romans of the Old Testament, how the character of God is mapped onto the sinfulness and the salvation of humanity. And so we see how God's holiness demands and develops holiness in his people. And we see how God's holiness judges, always judges sin. It's either going to judge our sin by judging us and condemning us, or our sin will be judged by falling on the shoulders of our substitute, the suffering servant. If that's what, or if that's who Isaiah and the prophets are, the last thing to talk about is why. Why do we need to hear this today? Why do we need to hear this today? Taking the message to heart. Why do we need to hear this today? Taking the message to heart. And I'll show you this from Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2 and then maybe a tiny bit from Isaiah 43. But if you go to Isaiah 1 and 2, I'll show you why we need to hear this today. Here's the point of Isaiah 1 and 2. <clears throat> Here's the point. <clears throat> it always starts with the people of God getting right with God right now. It always starts with the people of God getting right with God right now. It always starts with the people of God getting right with God right now. I want to show you this in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2. In Isaiah 1, it starts with the people of God being wrong with God. Verse 2, hear, O heaven, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He's talking about his people. Children I've reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its owner. The donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The people of God start out wrong with God. But he invites them. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do good. Verse 18, come now, let us reason. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. It starts with the people of God getting right with God right now. And once the people of God get right with God, look at what happens in chapter 2. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he says they'll, they'll beat the swords into plowshares and everyone will walk in the light of the Lord. This, this, this is the situation. It always starts with the people of God getting right with God right now. And that right now is a, is a homiletical application of this exegetically here. That right now is in chapter two is gonna happen far, far in the future. But we take that eschatological picture and we apply it to what's happening now, which is still the case that for anything good to happen in this church, for anything good to happen among the people of God right here within the sound of my voice, it has to start with the people of God getting right with God right now. What this world needs is a church that looks like Isaiah 2. The presence of God, the peace of God, the presence of God's holiness. I want to say one of those things that is, that is so obvious, it seems obvious, but if you will let this burn in your mind all week, you'll realize that this is not as obvious as you think it is. What this world needs most is a church that is so obviously saved that this world has an alternative to convert toward. What this world needs is a church that is so obviously saved, so obviously anointedly God-filled that this world now has in real life a living alternative toward which to convert. This is the message we need. Why is the church weak? Why aren't sinners streaming into this Zion and saying, we want to get saved, we want to get saved. How can, we, how, how, how can we get in on this? It's because we compromise. It's because we sin. It's because we have no vision of the reality of God. How could things be different? Things would be different if the world looked at a church and finally saw this church doesn't freak out like we do. This church doesn't fear like we do. A.W. Tozer, a frightened world needs a fearless church. And we expand on that. A confused world needs a clarified church. A doubting world needs a believing church. What this world needs is a church that is so obviously saved from this world that the church is a living alternative to convert to, to join in with. 
It always starts with the people of God getting right with God. Right? We studied Acts together in our ABFs. You tell me what showed up in Acts. The government did everything that it could to step on and squish the church in the book of Acts. Question, did Caesar ever slow down the growth of the church? Answer, no. We learned in the book of Acts, there is nothing that the Caesar powers of this world can do to stop the growth of the church. But we also learned in the book of Acts, as you will learn in the book of Corinthians that we're studying right now, the compromise of the church itself, the church's self-selection to mute her own message, that would ruin the church. That would stifle the church's growth. That would be the end. The greatest need of the world is a church that is really a church, a church that is filled with the living God, a church that fears nothing but God, a church that sees the reality of God. That's why we need a vision beyond what we simply see with our eyes. Let me show you to you one more place in Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. I'm in 43.2. Through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. There's Isaiah's favorite name of God. You see that? Verse 3, I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. From the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The church needs a vision of God. We need the assurance that God has called us by name. Therefore, we do not fear what man can do to me. Therefore, we don't self-selectively mute our message based on what will or won't make a sale today. We, we, have, we have a bigger standard than that. We have the living spirit of God who's called us by name. And so Isaiah shows us passionately and relentlessly what the Bible shows us and what we ought to know all along. The people of God can only become who they ought to be when they have been reduced to nothing and they repent of their sin and they're forgiven by a righteous and holy God and then they are filled and anointed with his very presence. That's the vision we need for the people of God to get right with God right now. Let's pray. Lord God, you have not been silent. You have not left your will unknown. Yet at times we have been unhearing. And in times we have been woefully uncomprehending. 
but we bless your name for you have made your will known to us even in this moment in your word. And so we ask that by your spirit you would draw us to repentance. And so we ask that by your spirit you would sweeten us with humility. And so we ask by your spirit you would embolden us to fearlessness against whatever this world throws at us. Let us come to you, living God, just as we are, repentant, humble, and weak, in order that you may fill us and strengthen us for your glory and even for the salvation of this world. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.